0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have an exceptional show for you today. Certainly the best one so far this week. How about that? (laughs) Bacha Angar Sargon is back with us uh, for Mondays. Great to see you, Bacha.
1: Thank you so much. It's so great to be here with you, Robbie. Um, Liz Wolf will also be joining us to discuss the disparities between Black children and white children regarding vaccine statuses and how this is affecting their education in DC. And Haley Smith will be with us to discuss celebrities accused of violating LA County's LA County's water restrictions. But first, President Biden put his new campaign strategy on display. Last week, he began ramping up his aggression towards the GOP, signaling what The Washington Post is calling a, quote, no-holds-barred strategy for midterms, after Biden accused the GOP of, quote, semi-fascism, taking aim at MAGA Republicans. Over the weekend, reporters pressed Biden over his remarks. Here's what he had to say.
2: What do
0: you mean by semi-fascism,
2: sir? In December, you will...
0: You know what I mean. Mr. President. Meanwhile, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre explained what the president meant further.
3: Is it something the president's going to kind of embrace, or is there any sense that it was, uh, you know, a little impromptu and it's going to turn into a kind of basket of deplorables thing that he regrets and that tries to be quiet about?
2: I, look, I was very clear when, uh, when laying out uh, and defining uh, what... Uh, you know, MAGA Republicans have done, and you look at the definition of fascism, and you think about uh, what they're doing in in attacking our democracy, what they're doing in taking away uh, our freedoms, uh, taking away, wanting to take away our rights, our voting rights, I mean, that is what that is. It is very clear, and that's why he made that, um, that, um, that powerful speech uh, that you heard uh, from him last night. And he has not shied away from saying that. You have heard him, uh, maybe not use that specific word, but you have heard him uh, certainly use that def- definition. Um, and look, what we, again, what we are putting before the American people is, is a choice, right? Uh, and it is clear. There's a clear contrast as what is happening on that side uh, of the aisle and what's happening on our side with congressional Democrats and what we have been delivering for the American people.
0: How do you feel about that strategy, strategy, <laughs> uh, Make, you know, make uh, Republican opposition seem like, they're, well, they're just fascists. So you, you, how could you vote for them? You must be a fascist if you do so.
1: I just keep coming back to the fact that President Biden, when he was campaigning to be president, kept saying, I am going to be a uniter and not a divider. I am going to lower the temperature. I am going to bring the American people back together. I am going to be the president of the entire country, not just half of it. And this is the exact opposite of that. It is so, so appalling to me. I mean, this is actually, it's a it's very much a basket of deplorables moment, but it's mm-hmm. even worse. because there you know you know Hillary Clinton was impugning their character which was bad enough but here literally comparing people voters a party to fascists It's so unbelievable, and it's exactly what he's accusing them of, right, to suggest that there is no legitimate opposition to your side, to your political orientation, to your, you know, political agenda. There's no legitimate criticism. There's no legitimate way to say, hey, maybe we think we should be limiting abortion at 12 weeks. Hey, maybe we think that we should be, you know, doing, you know, this or that, that the president happens to not agree with for whatever reason, to call that fascism. Um, is itself to do the biggest crime of fascism, which is, you know, uniparty authoritarian rule where you say, I don't accept that my political opposition is legitimate. What do you think about this, Robbie?
0: Yeah, I I mean, it's just an annoying, uh, to to use that hyperbole, You know, well, what if, okay, how, why not turn that around? Like, what then was it, you know, was it fascist? I thought it was a vast, uh, uh, exceeding presidential authority when Biden, you know, unilaterally declared a federal vaccine mandate um, last week for giving, and we're going to talk more about uh, the student loan debt forgiveness plan, I think, in both of our radars today. But, you know, that's something that I don't, I, some, Nancy Pelosi didn't think he had the authority to do that as recently as you know, whenever she made those comments. So is that fascism? We're just going to call everything fascism if we don't like it. Um, it's it's so it's so insulting, and it speaks to the fact that I think it's the case that Democrats are more likely to call Republican voters bad people. They they call Republican voters bad people. Republicans say. Insane things about Democratic politicians. <laughs> they, you know, they they go to the mat against uh, Democratic politicians, Democratic policies. I don't know that they try to insult Democratic voters in the same way because they know that they can win and are winning some people who have voted Democrat historically, who voted for Obama, you know, as recently as ten years ago. They know they can get those people. They have gotten those people. That Trump got a lot of those people, and they can continue to do so even without Trump. So they don't make they don't humiliate them. They don't insult them. The Democrats have this because their coalition is now really so much more of an elite coalition of a, of a you know, very well-educated, young, elite coalition. They do feel this license to insult Republican voters, probably to their own detriment, probably they're losing people they would get um, because they talk down to them.
1: And I think what's so interesting is um, that in addition to running as a uniter, um, that one of the reasons I think that President Biden took the nomination, Democratic nomination in 2020 was he refused to run on the sort of the agenda of the Twitterati. Right. He was very good at saying. I am running for votes of average normie Americans, right, who don't have time to be on Twitter all day, which is where that elite that you just described hangs out and has like a total lock on, you know, the discourse. But now, to me, it really seems like he's running to be president of Twitter, right, calling them Mm -hmm. semi-fascists. I mean, that is like total, like right out of the Twitterati elite leftist playbook. And then the president's own um, Twitter account, they started, the, the official White House Twitter account started trolling, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene on questions like, you know, taking out PPE loans and things like this, you know, since when he promised that he was going to be the guy who didn't do mean tweets. Right. And now here we are midterm elections and he's the guy who's doing mean tweets. It's just there's such an irony Mm -hmm. to
0: it. And 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 there's such a clear Uh, A trajectory for success. When he look, the 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 Democrats are looking like they're going to have a much better fall in terms of the election than we were expecting a few months ago. Uh, I I think for for a variety of reasons, but I think in part because you know these Republican, uh, many of these Republican candidates in Arizona, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania are weird or off putting or very (laughs) extreme. You know, outside what the what the you know median. A potential Republican voter is in those states. Uh, also, uh, you know the Dobbs decision has unleashed, I think, um, some levels of anti-abortion legislation that are that are further further to the right than what uh, what many people are comfortable with. And you're seeing, I, I think you're seeing in real time you know, some voters who were really fed up with Democratic policies saying, well, the economy is starting to do a little bit better. And you know what? Mm-hmm. These people are more extreme than I'm willing. They're more connected to Trump, who I really want off out of the scene. Uh, and, and, and so Democrats can still do well, but then when they, so then when they use this rhetoric, it just seems so, so ridiculous. Like they can't help themselves, but talk down to these voters because it's such a, it's such a losing, uh, losing approach. And and to your point and NBC's Peter Alexander, uh, pointed out that there's hypocrisy over Biden's previous stance on being a unifier, just like you said, let's watch this.
3: There's no backpedaling on this. It's clear that there's a more aggressive strategy. We talked about the way that they were handling the debate over student loans. Do you think he actually soft pedaled it? Do you think <laughs> someone said you should say fascism? And he said, I'm <laughs> gonna say, <I'll> <laughs>
4: say <laughs> When I
3: spoke to Age, this wasn't a this wasn't a teleprompter yeah. speech. This is what he's been thinking. They right. say he said it out loud. This was done not on camera. But it did, it fires up Democrats. It juices up the base because they want to see him be more aggressive on that. But it also does, you know, it does become problematic because, you know, this is there's, a guy who said he wanted to be a unified. Here's my-
0: yeah, it's just uh, it, it's just ridiculous. Again, and I think it, it's very foolish when Republicans say Joe Biden is a, you know, Marxist, communist, progressive, <laughs> liberal, socialist. I'm like, well, okay, he's a liberal, he's a progressive. I don't think he's a socialist. He's definitely not a Marxist or a communist. But, but you, you know, you'll hear all those things thrown at him. But then th- their side does it, too.
1: And, it, you know, what bothers me the most about this is that— um, the president's, um, the sort of momentum that the party, that the Democratic Party is riding right now is based on a series of very successful bipartisan pieces of legislation that got a lot of Republican votes. You know, the CHIPS Act, the gun control legislation. Earlier, we had the big infrastructure legislation. These are bills that got a lot of support from Republicans and, you know, in thanks for their efforts, they get to now see the president go out there and call their voters semi-fascists. I I, I really think that that irony is um, really important to point out because, you know, for a minute there, it felt like, oh, wow, Biden is actually ruling the way that he said he, you know, what he would mm-hmm. when he was campaigning. He's making these, you know, strides across the aisle, getting, you know, support for legislation that's extremely popular with the American people, only to come out and campaign for the midterms in this really, really ugly rhetoric
0: Right. Sem- semi-fascism. What, is, what does that even mean? That's such a ridiculous <laughs> term. Aren't, are we, haven't you succumbed <laughs> to fascism or you haven't? I mean, it's. I guess on, on, we're on the road to fascism. And what they mean by that, when elite people use that term, right, they're talking about <clears throat> threats to our election, uh, integrity kind of stuff, which fair enough, Republicans have said a lot of ri- really ridiculous things about uh, election stuff and have tried you know, to make tweaks that would be bad. They've largely failed at that. Um, and then they talk about, you know, like misinformation is what's ruining our democracy. There's like too much speech on social media. It's too easy for people to make their own judgment about things. Things that actually don't sound like fascism at, at all to me and are, are like the opposite of centralized government-based control over what you can say and think and do. We have less of that. It's harder to do that. And that's what a lot of those people who talk about fascism actually mean, that oh, there's too much—you might fall sway to something right-wing people think on social media which is it's, the opposite it, of A hundred
1: percent. And I think it's that. And also the best example of this was a Washington Post cartoon about the trucker's convoy in sure. Canada. And it had it, the, the cartoon was this. It was a series of trucks and they, it said fascism on them, right? These working class um, truck drivers who were opposing a semi-fascistic vaccine mandate that they put something in their body. Uh, it doesn't matter that 90% of them were vaccinated. Doesn't matter that they sit mm-hmm. alone in their trucks all day encountering mm-hmm. nobody. This actually semi-fascistic mandate that they get vaccinated they were engaged in this labor protest against that and to the elites in the media that is what looks like fascism to them is standing up to their actual overreach their mm-hmm. actual authoritarianism it's such an important point that you you
0: just made Robbie we won't let we won't let people come from from other countries can't come in, into this country unless they get vaccinated. Uh, uh, Djokovic can't come compete here because of that. Uh, ridiculous! No public health rationale for it. Not a policy that should exist. Not one that was voted on by any legislative body. It's just a you know policy of our of our homeland security apparatus that makes no sense. But. We're not supposed to call that fascist. It's not. I mean, it's, again, that would be hyperbolic. It's just a very bad policy that should be changed, but the one-sided nature of these things. Uh, one more uh, for our audience is New York Governor Kathy Hochul taking a page out of Biden's new playbook. Let's watch this. And we're here to say
2: that the era of Trump and Zeldin and Molinaro just jump on a bus and head down to Florida where you belong, okay? Get out of town, get out of town. Because you don't re- you don't represent our values. You are not New Yorkers.
0: Hmm. And there was some rhetoric, I believe, from Charlie Crist uh, recently, who's running for uh, governor in Florida against DeSantis, saying that he doesn't want, you know, Republicans to vote for him. He wouldn't. <laughs> not that they would. You <laughs> know, I think he's offering anything they would like. But, yeah, he doesn't. It's that. Added. I don't want those voters. You know, I don't want them, um, which is just okay, good job, good luck running that campaign.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just so sad. Like they, they, Their version of protecting democracy is eliminating the thing that makes a democracy a democracy, which is you know, tolerance for the viewpoints of mm-hmm. others, right? And you know, I, I think at the end of the day, there are two components to like, the MAGA movement, the sort of Trumpism, with or without Trump, there is that piece about election denialism that makes me very uncomfortable, that, you know, the, the sort of the January 6th stuff, right? That That's there, you, we can't deny that that's there. But to me, the real force behind Trumpism, the real, um, the, the thing that gave it that momentum, that gave it that vector, that, that the thing that it truly represents, that Trump truly represents, is the forgotten working class who saw him as a tribune, the people that the elites of both parties abandoned for so long, whose communities they destroyed, who saw in him and who see in this movement their economic agenda. It is, you know, Trump's economic agenda was extremely populist in nature, extremely protectionist. We talk about this all the time all the stuff you hate, Robbie. It was extremely close to everything Bernie Sanders ran on in 2015 and 2016. Um, And that is is the piece that, that I think is really threatening to the left because these are the people that the left used to represent that they have abandoned. And so they have to cast this as fascism or as racism, which they do all the time, to hide the class divide that they have benefited from in the way that they have abandoned Trump's voters.
0: Yeah, no doubt. All right, well, we'll tell you what's on our radars. I think we're both talking about the student loan debt forgiveness. Stay tuned for that.
1: I always say this, but today I really mean it. Robbie, I'm so excited to hear what's on your radar.
0: All right, well, if you watched Rising last week, you know that we talked about President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan a lot, and we're not done. It's something that myself and many of our libertarian and right leaning guests vehemently oppose, whereas many of our left leaning hosts and guests are in favor of it, although several of them think it doesn't go far enough. If you watched our commentary on this issue, you'll understand that we don't pull punches on the show as much as we agree on some issues that unite populists on the left and the right. We also do disagree, really, really disagree, on some fundamental policy questions. We think it's important to have these discussions, these debates, these arguments and have them civilly and respectfully as much as possible, but have them nonetheless. And it's not just for the cameras. When the video ends, we stop recording. Me and Brianna Joy Gray, who hosted with me last week, Tuesday through Thursday, we often continue the conversation with each other, debating just as aggressively as we do on the show. And The same has been true of other various pairs of hosts. We think it's valuable to show actual differences of opinion, because frankly, most other news and opinion shows on other platforms and other channels, they usually feature broad agreement between the host and the guests. Where's the fun in that? I think it's better to present a range of views and leave it up to the audience to decide who they think made the better case on individual policy questions. But here's the thing. All of us who host this show respect each other enough to argue in good faith. May get heated, but we know that we all come from a well-meaning place. I would like to contrast that with how opponents of student debt forgiveness, like myself and like you, Bacha, have been treated by mainstream and progressive commentators elsewhere in the pundit sphere. So New York Magazine called Biden's plan an act of mercy that will ignite the class war. Writer Sarah Jones had the nerve to describe opposition to Biden's loan forgiveness plan as what it looks like when an elite class defends its territory. According to Jones, opposition to this plan is coming from the elites, who I guess want the non-elites to suffer. Her first two examples of people who are part of the elite and are supposedly attacking the indebted little guys were me and Baccia. Jones writes that our objections to the Biden plan are a tell, are proof that for a certain few among us, college is principally a way to reproduce the same elite class in perpetuity. This is absurd commentary. Many of us who are opposed to student debt forgiveness oppose it for the very reason that it benefits a certain elite class, those who went to college, over a non-elite class, those who didn't. Yes, you can technically have plenty of advantage without going to college, and yes, you can go to college but fail to graduate or take on so much debt that you end up worse off than you were without it. But by and large, the college-seeking coalition is the elite coalition. It's disproportionately the democratic coalition. It has cultural hegemony. And in most cases, it has economic power. Yes, some people who took out college loans are in bad shape. And Biden talked about them when he announced the plan last week.
3: An entire generation is now saddled with unsustainable debt in exchange for an attempt, at least, at a college degree. The burden is so heavy that even if you graduate, you may not have access to the middle class life that the college degree once provided.
0: Here's my question, and it's a question I asked repeatedly last week. If the system is so bad for so many people, why aren't we changing the system? After all, his is quite an indictment of the federal student loan pa- program. So one might have expected that Biden's generous debt forgiveness plan would be accompanied by serious reforms to the underlying system that produce such inequities. The government is conceding that its loan program has scammed millions of desperate people, their situation so dire, their prospect of repayment so dim that Biden is requiring everyone else to pitch in and help them. But Biden's debt forgiveness plan will do nothing, absolutely nothing, to fundamentally change the incentive system that created this doom spiral in the first place. Degree seekers will continue to borrow large amounts of money to buy, in some cases, useless education. Indeed, they might feel even more encouraged to do so now that this precedent has been set. Meanwhile, colleges and universities will have even less incentive to lower costs they're going to spiral out of control. Economic researchers have often found that the government subsidized student loans cause educational institutions to jack up their prices for obvious reasons. If the feds cover the cost on the front end, no matter what it is, universities have every incentive to raise the sticker price. Forgiving student loan debt exacerbates this problem since it encourages more reckless borrowing. Indeed, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget estimates the cumulative student debt level will return to current levels in just a few years. There are structural incentives that push students to borrow money that they can never hope to pay back. And the fact that so many people have fallen into crippling debt is a compelling reason to change these incentives. No rule says the federal government has to lure people down a path that leads them to financial ruin with some frequency. Congress can sharply limit or even end This policy, a one-off cancellation of some level of debt held by borrowers who happen to be in dire straits at this specific moment in time, well, that does nothing to fix the underlying problems. On the contrary, makes them worse. It's a slap in the face to everyone who either paid down their college debt or made different educational choices to avoid accruing it in the first place. If Biden wanted to make the strongest conceivable case for forgiving some college debt, this course of action needed to be paired with serious changes to the entire higher education system, how we fund it. Otherwise, Biden is simply engaged in a vast transfer of wealth, taking hard-earned money from those who did not fall prey to the federal government scam and awarding it to those who unfortunately did. So that's my take on this botch. And like, it's not, you know, we're being tarred as unsympathetic as how, you know, we, we just want <laughs> suffering people to continue to suffer. We don't want to help them. And it just, like, misses the whole part of this, which is that the, the loans were made by the taxpayers, that—like, that, that, the government doesn't have a magic pile of money that doesn't come from where else. It, it's given to people from us, and now they can't pay it back. And they're saying it's heartless to say, well, wait a minute. If we just, you know, wipe out that debt for you—you know, we still—again, we gave you the money, so we're not getting it back. And then we're not changing the system at all that caused that. That's what I don't get. If you're going to say this is so broken that we have to do this, but not change this, that, that is a, it's an indictment of the system. It's, a, it's an admission that this system is bad. So we have to change it. We have to change something about how higher education is funded and paid for. And Biden seems to concede that, but they're, we're, not, we're not doing it. Even though I think you could probably get some bipartisan support and interest. You know, if, if it's the Democrats so worried about the debt and what this is doing to, to young people and, and or anyone who takes out debt, and Republicans are very concerned about the kind of cultural sway that universities, that elite education holds over our society. We're we worried that it's being overvalued, that, you know, in the humanities, the liberal arts, there's a lot of needless degrees that are being subsidized, actually, to the detriment of our society, including, you know, just the people who seek them. So let's put together some legislation, but uh, but but just doing this without that, I, I think it is really misguided.
1: Where do you come down on the motivation question here?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, <laughs> How look, cynical it, is your reading? Of this? Look, it's. Uh, <laughs>
0: This largely rewards the Democratic coalition, because it, this wouldn't have been true 20 years ago, but it is true now that the Democratic coalition is disproportionately the college-seeking and the, and the diploma-attaining class. So it, it rewards Democrats. Look, and I don't—I'm not—there's nothing— it is not crazy for a political leader to want to reward the coalition that put him in power. So I'm not saying it is necessarily nefarious in nature to do that. Um, I'm just saying that I think it's misguided, given that there's going to be no other change. We-, we can have this same level of debt, this same problem, just as many people in desperate financial straits. Five years from now and ten years from now, it could be worse for them. It could be. It could be because the Colleges are going to just are going to raise tuition even further. They're going to have to take you know, bigger loans. And and it's that's that's what we're going to create. So it, I think in the short term, yes, it's it's a little bit of a, of a reward to a, you know, a coalition that Biden wants to turn, you know, wants to show up in November, Uh, you you know, young, young, very progressive people are maybe less, who, who, uh, who like the kind of, you know, Twitter elite consensus that, that you were complaining about in a block, Baccia, they might be feeling a little bit de-energized right now to vote for Biden. So maybe this gets them moving in the right direction. Although, uh, you know, many progressives, uh, including, you know, Brianna, who co-hosts the show sometimes would argue that this doesn't go nearly far enough. So I don't know if it'll fail to, it'll make people mad and then fail to sufficiently excite um, uh, enough progressives. I don't know about, you know, strategically, I don't know. I think it's an an open question. It is a little bit of a reward. I don't know that that's nefarious, but I do think it's a bad policy idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't disagree with anything (laughs) you said.
0: (laughs) Well, I am definitely looking forward to your take on the whole student student loan uh, debt cancellation issue. That'll be in your radar coming up next. I'm delighted to learn what's on your radar.
1: Well, as you all know, last week President Biden announced he would be taking the unprecedented step of forgiving $10,000 in student loans to borrowers making less than $125,000 a year. Second-year Harvard Law graduate Supreme Court clerks, social media editors at major publications, dentists early in their careers, accountants taking their first jobs, all of these people will qualify for this taxpayer-funded bailout of the upper class. Of course, some people who truly need and deserve help will qualify too. About 10% of Americans who attended some college dropped out before getting a degree, and some of them are saddled with student loans while working minimum wage jobs. Certainly some of the forgiveness will apply to them. But even more of it will go to the elites, young, college-educated Americans at the beginning of what will be very lucrative and stable careers by the time they're in their 30s and 40s, and to others currently making double the median income of the average household in this nation. I'm not going to relitigate the student loan debate. Robbie, you did an amazing job of holding down the fort last week. Um, but as someone who spends most of my reporting hours talking to working class Americans across the nation, you can guess where I stand on this legislation, a piece of class warfare that Inez Stepman has called a reverse Robin Hood, taking from the poor and giving to the rich, or what Zed Jelani has called a Brahmin bailout, or what railroad worker Charles Stalworth called trickle-down economics leftist edition in Newsweek. The point I want to make today is that the student loan forgiveness program is not an aberration. It's the apotheosis of a trend on the progressive left in which progressives wage class war on the working class, but dress it up as a moral pose. It's a move you see over and over on the new progressive left. They take their economic privilege, mistake it for virtue, and then make the working class pay for it. Student loan forgiveness is, of course, the perfect example of this. It's always portrayed by the left as some kind of social justice initiative, when the truth is the opposite. The highest income 40% of borrowers hold 60% of the student debt in this country. And yes, some poor folks and working class folks have student loans, but the vast majority of student debt is held by people who will, on average, make $1 million more in their lives than people who don't have a degree. A college degree is not only a predictor of upward mobility, but better. better health outcomes, a longer life, and all the benefits of today's economy, which elites of both parties have made sure works extremely well for knowledge industry jobs and extremely poorly for the people who do the kinds of jobs we actually rely on to exist. How do progressives, the people who are supposed to care about the lower classes, about fairness, about equity, end up pushing for a bailout for the people already most likely to succeed in this country. A bailout that will be paid at taxpayers' expense, meaning by the working class. At least Biden capped the forgiveness at those making one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year or less. But recall that the progressive position was total cancellation for every Harvard Law educated lawyer and every NYU educated dentist and perhaps not coincidentally, every congressperson making one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a year. How is this the progressive position? Well, consider who progressives are. According to the Pew Research Center, progressives are the whitest and tied for most highly educated of all of the groups that make up the Democratic coalition. There's your answer. This is class warfare on their own behalf. It's not just progressives, though. The entire Democratic Party has undergone a status revolution of late. 65% of Americans making over $500,000 a year are now Democrats, while 74% of voters making less than $100,000 a year vote Republican. 84 of the 100 highest educated counties in the country vote Democrat. The wealthiest 4% of Americans are increasingly Democrats, and 98% of donations from Silicon Valley went to President Biden. Joe Biden also got more political donations from Wall Street than Donald Trump did. When you realize who progressives are, it's clear that what they're doing with student loan forgiveness is just advocating for their own economic interests. And there's actually nothing wrong with that. The problem is that is not what they say. They don't admit that they are pushing for something that will benefit them. They cast this as some kind of moral battle for the indigent when what it is is lining the pockets of the elites. Here's the thing, student loan forgiveness is not the only example like this. When you examine the entire progressive platform, every plank of it has this category error in it of misunderstanding economic privilege as moral virtue and then demanding that the working class pay for it. I've discussed here at length how this works with regards to immigration how the class that benefits from cheap goods and cheap labor decided to call you racist if you work in an industry that's undercut by importing an entirely new working class from another part of the world. It's also the case with their maximalist green agenda. One class is zipping around in electric cars, the perfect virtue signal because it signals not only your virtue, but how rich you are, while the other class has good union jobs in the energy sector axed in favor of importing slave-manufactured wind turbines from cheap China. They are all for releasing mentally ill drug addicts into your communities where they prey on vulnerable people of color while they live in nice neighborhoods with astronomical rents polishing their halos. COVID lockdowns of course worked this way too. The homeowner class's home values skyrocketed. Private school educated children soared astronomically ahead of their public school counterparts who were relegated to Zoom learning by the laptop class's regime, which punished the working class who had to brave the plague. They cast anybody who opposed lockdown as a moral pervert while watching their own bank accounts swell. And then when it came time to end the lockdowns, they demanded that you take the vaccine to protect them while they were served by you so they could feel comfortable being waited on you in restaurants and hospitals. Student loan forgiveness isn't an aberration of who the Democrats are under the sway of the progressive movement, but the apotheosis of a party, upwardly transferring wealth from the working class to themselves. It's trickle-up economics. And if you oppose any aspect of it, you're selfish, says Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Instagram about the student loan forgiveness uh, uh, policy over the weekend. Quote, in light of the ecological, economic and social challenges we face, our society's ability to triumph and prevail actually depends on our capacity for selflessness over selfishness. She wrote in her thoughts on student loan forgiveness. Did you get that? Stop being so selfish. Waitresses and linemen and nurses, aides and cops pay off our student loans. Pay us a twelve thousand dollar rebate for our Tesla's. Keep funding DEI consultants who have ballooned the cost of a college education so we'll be in this exact same place in three years. How can you be so selfish as to oppose any of this, wonders a woman making $174,000 a year. They don't just call you selfish. Progressives, including the president, hit back against criticism of the student loan forgiveness scam by bringing up the payroll protection loans that many took out when the government locked down the economy and made it impossible for people to work. How are these at all comparable? Where exactly is the contradiction between not wanting people to get laid off and not wanting truck drivers to pay off the loans of first-year corporate lawyers? Or they bring up Republicans handouts to the rich. What about Trump's tax cuts? Indeed, that is exactly who they most resemble. Someone should tell them that this isn't a defense but an admission of guilt. Student loan forgiveness is a tax cut for the rich. If the Republicans have for too long been the party of the rich, the Democrats have become the party of the over-educated elites, pushing open borders, corporate lawyer loan forgiveness, climate and COVID extremism as a form of class warfare against the very people they used to view as their base. Not anymore. They used to ask why the working class is voting against their economic interests when they vote for Republicans. That line of argument is no longer available to them, even as a joke. It's like they're begging you to understand this. They don't want your votes. And some are even coming out and saying that these days, like Florida Democrat gubernatorial hopeful Charlie Crist, who had a basket of deplorables moment last week when asked about how he was going to attract the supporters of his rival, Governor Ron DeSantis. Watch. What do you say to the Floridians who buy into and support the governor
4: and his policies?
3: Those who support the governor should stay with them and vote for him. And I don't want your vote. If you have that hate in your heart, keep it. I want the vote of the people of Florida who care about our state. Good Democrats, good independents, good Republicans. Unify with this ticket. Unify with Val Demings and Charlie. Unify with us. Those who are haters, you're going to go off in your own world. And you better get right.
1: Did you hear that? Chris said the quiet part out loud. I don't want your vote. But even more are saying it with their actions. Hmm. So Robbie, we're sort of aligned on this um, issue. I think the class warfare aspect of it, um, the sometimes disingenuous nature of the pushback from the progressive left. Um, and I, I really enjoyed your radar, which was um, very much on a similar topic, but I think mm-hmm. took, took, took the angle of the larger problem that is not being fixed, but that's actually being supported by this. And I saw somebody making an argument that I thought was really interesting. So the, um, after um, the you know Inflation Reduction Act was passed, um, it had in that that rebate, I think in the end, the rebate was $7,000 if you buy an electric car. And literally the next day, electric cars, um, they the companies that sell them boosted the price by exactly seven thousand dollars, and that's exactly what, what we're going to see now with Exactly with the with the universities. Well, and then people and their, will come to me yeah. and
0: say, you know, why? Oh, oh you know you're against giving a bailout to indebted college students and graduates but you know what about all those other bailouts like you i guess you don't know me very well i was certainly against whatever bailout you're about to suggest to me and then they were using you know people were using the PPP loan uh, PPP, the pp uh, the the loans i'm mixing my terminology here for um uh forgiveness for those but, which, okay, you know what, fair enough. I was actually fine if you wanted to, you know, rail against whatever. Although some of those were wrong, like uh, Ben Shapiro was accused of getting one of those forgiven and it was the wrong Ben Shapiro. Um, uh, Nash <laughs> Review was, was accused of it. It wasn't that, there's been a lot of like misfires on accusing who got this loan forgiven. But like those loans were given because the government shut down the economy you know, to, to pay workers um, through that period. Um, I, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I would have kept certain things shut down for as long uh, as uh, as well. Certainly not as long as public health officials and Team Blue wanted them shut down. So I think that's a different scenario. But but fair enough. In general, I'm very against. Um, group and industry specific bailouts we, we, you know we've seen with the airline industry they bailed that industry out and uh, you know what happened they they fired too many pilots anyway and now air travel is ridiculously screwed up so it didn't help you know so many times they say okay well we're gonna give you this money but here's here's how we the government want it you know done so that it doesn't Hurt people too much, and you know, these companies—they give it to their—you know—they sometimes they just give it to their billionaire, millionaire, billionaire um, uh, CEOs and executives anyway, and they don't spend it on the things you want them to spend it on. So it's a, it's a very fraught project in general. Um, so I no hypocrisy for me. I really—I I was against the bank bailouts. I was against the auto bailouts. I was against et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's funny to see you know people. Try to and then okay and then if if we're doing that conflation, if people are saying that this is just like that and that was wrong, well then isn't this wrong? <laughs> it doesn't right. make any sense. <laughs> so
1: yeah, I mean, I also do think there is a huge difference between someone who um, employs other people and someone who right. like employs themselves. Right? Right. There's just a big difference between those two things. If you are creating jobs. You know, that is something the government should be invested in, clearly. Uh, I think maybe you don't agree with me. Yeah,
0: um, mm. but, um, mm. things are Okay, important. we, finally, we have, finally have a disagreement so far today. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know about, I don't know about that. Maybe let's just ease up on uh, whatever the government's doing. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into it some more uh, right after this. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more Rising.
1: Today is Washington, D.C.'s first day of school for children. We previously told you about a mandate that would have kept any student who wasn't vaccinated from attending. But yesterday, Deputy Mayor for Education Paul Kine announced that the vaccine mandate will be pushed back until January 2023. DC Mayor Muriel Bowser faced major backlash over the vaccine policy. According to associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf, more than 40% of black teens in the city would have been kept from attending school. In addition to proof of vaccination, students of all ages are required to provide a negative COVID test before stepping foot into the classroom for their first day.
0: A STATEMENT BY MAYOR BOWSER SAID ON THE ISSUE, IN PART, WE'RE NOT OFFERING REMOTE LEARNING FOR CHILDREN AND FAMILIES WILL NEED TO COMPLY WITH WHAT IS NECESSARY TO COME TO SCHOOL. IT'S A MOVE THAT PROMPTED THE NAACP TO GET INVOLVED.
3: THE NUMBERS ARE PRETTY STRIKING. THE WASHINGTON POST REPORTS 87% OF WHITE CHILDREN 12 TO 15 HAVE BEEN VACCINATED, WHILE JUST 53% OF BLACK CHILDREN Are you planning to sue or take some other measure to try to stop this mandate? Not at all. We are not looking at any legal action, but we are, as you
5: know, the NAACP is the nation's oldest and largest civil rights organization that for over 112 years has been a fierce advocate to ensure that Black lives are valued, safe, healthy, and whole. And the challenge within this mandate is to balance both public health and educational equity. So ensuring that we are that voice to fight for educational options for all students, but particularly because these numbers show that the unvaccinated population is particularly disproportionately impacting our black students, we must fight for quality alternatives to ensure that no students
6: are left behind. Hmm.
0: My colleague, Reasons Liz Wolf, joins us now to unpack all this. Thanks for being with us, Liz.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so they, at the last minute, delayed uh, enforcement of the vaccine mandate until January, which I always find funny when they change it at the very last minute. Like, you know, we, what, what was the, family, the situation for families and parents? Were like, okay, well, my kid's not going to school. And then at the very last minute, they maybe find out that actually your kid can go to school, and the, so they send him to school. Probably a lot of those people, it's too late, they're not going to school anyway because of, you know, bad pu- public education about this issue, right?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting political topic, right? Because Fox News and the NAACP are on the same side, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which isn't to say that that never happens, but I think it goes to show that you could have a principled uh, objection to vaccine mandates of this sort and also be concerned about the racially disparate impact that these things end up having, which is something that so many progressives claim to care about Muriel Bowser's own administration has claimed to care about this and yet still felt comfortable imposing this from on high. It's worth noting with public schools we've long had vaccine mandates in place. We expect public school children in this country to be vaccinated against measles. We expect them to be vaccinated against polio, but it's worth considering. Does COVID rise to that level? We see vaccines being highly protective against death and severe illness but not against actually contracting infections. We see tons and tons of breakthrough infections. And so if the goal is ensuring that there's not an outbreak that's disruptive to school, I think it's a little bit of an open question as to whether vaccination uh, actually achieves that. So I think there should be a very, very high burden uh, of, of proof and of efficacy that we impose. I think we should be as sparing as possible with the mandates that we're going to pass down for public school children. And yet for some reason, Bowser hasn't, you know, felt comfortable doing that. She's you, decided to be uh, sort of a culture warrior about this.
0: You, you often can't get, these days, you can't get progressives to care about a policy issue unless you fra- uh, frame it in a in terms of racial mm-hmm. inequity. Like, that <laughs> is the lens through which so many uh, progressives and Democrats approach all policy questions. I mean, the ACLU has to, you know, when it's discussing abortion, has to say, you know, how this will affect the LGBTQ community, because, like, that's just what, progressive circles do now. So thus you would think you might expect an actual uh, racially disproportionate impact of from this policy would be something of great interest um, to the ACLU and and you know even though they were you know on the same page as as Fox the NAACP there it was interesting they said no we're definitely not going to sue. Like you could like what is this this deference to a public health policy that i don't think you can even justify really on public health grounds anymore that they're not well we're not going to sue over it would that be in any other situation would they not sue over something that had a you know a racial inequity component
6: yeah i think that's a really good point and it just points to the degree to which this is a very tribal very partisan issue but I do also think we need to, as libertarians who cover this type of thing frequently, we need to go back to the the fundamental thing, which is like, what's the enforcement mechanism for this? Mm-hmm. Basically, these kids could become truants uh, if they're unable to attend school because they're unvaccinated. That means then the city can go after them for truancy related issues. Okay, well, at Reason, we've long covered uh, all kinds of situations where child welfare service and child social services agencies intervene and start surveilling parents. And in some cases, even go so far as to, you know, trot those parents uh, into court or levying fines, or even in very rare cases, subjecting them to jail time or putting them on offender registries uh, for child abuse and neglect. I mean, we saw a case uh, recently in New Jersey where a mom who'd left her kids in the car for, you know, to run a quick errand to go into a store to I think grab some sort of dessert for after dinner. She left her three-year-old and her five-year-old in the car, and she ended up uh, terribly surveilled by the state for years to come because of this. Robbie, you recently covered that Arizona case Mm -hmm. where a mom had left her kids uh, in a playground, uh, in a park uh, near an acquaintance who was teaching an outdoor class to run into a grocery store to get a turkey. And by the time she came out of the grocery store, the cops had started questioning her, and now she's barred from working with children in in the state of Arizona. Mm Uh, It's despicable and we need to have a really, really, really high standard for when we involve child services and child protective agencies.
1: In fact, a D.C. judge has also ruled that the mayor's 2021 city employee mandate is unlawful, per your remarks, Liz. Um, That that mandate required all employees to provide proof of vaccination in order to work in the district. According to WUSA 9, in court documents, Superior Judge Morris Ross said that the mayor, quote, lacked the authority to impose the vaccine mandate through emergency Mm. executive order. So it does seem like you know, the, the sort of, um, you know, the tide is turning at some level. And yet when it comes to the most vulnerable, one of the most important things, which is keeping black kids in school so they can get a good education, and have access to the American dream, you know, Mayor Bowser's on the wrong side of this. Oh, absolutely. And I think we're seeing this really interesting dynamic
6: where it's sometimes the richest residents in some cities that are pushing back against this. But it's a good thing they are, because I think that actually ends up helping for minority students who would otherwise get in trouble possibly for truancy. We saw this happening in L.A. when uh, L.A. sort of public health head honcho Barbara Farrar uh, was trying to impose a mask mandate uh, because L.A.'s case counts were rising this summer and a bunch of residents of Beverly Hills said, nope, we're not going to be enforcing that. You can do what you want. <laughs> but we, the fine people of Beverly Hills, will not, in fact, be adhering to that. And I think there's a really interesting situation right now that we're seeing where these public health authorities have gotten used to exercising their powers. Um, But 30 months into this pandemic, a whole bunch of people are saying no. And I think it's really good for people in all positions to basically defy because I think that ends up helping those black students who really do need to be in school who would otherwise get in trouble for truancy and have their parents sent to court uh, and harassed by the state or harassed by the city.
0: Uh, you know, it's interesting, too, Mayor Bowser, uh, when a- she was asked about this issue at a press conference, I think the last week or the week before, um, by Doug Blair, who's a friend of mine who works at the Heritage Foundation, and she was like, well, I-, I don't know about those numbers. I mean, they're numbers that are reported by the Washington Post. You'd think there'd be a lot of, you know, jumping uh, jumping down her throat about misinformation, about, you know, Im- impugning the media's good, uh, good judgment or something, but... But alas, no, I, I haven't seen a lot of criticism except from, you know, very right-wing people.
6: Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is it's a blessing that COVID isn't super deadly for kids. We have 70 million children in this country. We've had significantly fewer than 2,000 deaths in kids. We're getting better and better at treating kids, even though I don't think Paxlovid is technically approved for, like, the youngest demographic. I know they're running a bunch of clinical trials to sort of study and see how effective it is. We're getting so much better at fighting this thing. Obviously, if you are concerned about your kids getting sick and dying, you should get them vaccinated. But I think it's important to recognize that this is something that is, generally speaking, not impacting kids too much, uh, and that's a really good thing. We're really lucky.
0: And, and is not, unfortunately, <laughs> I wish it was. I wish it was, you know, not the case. But that the vaccination is not keeping down transmission. So then the justification for, you know, requiring kids to get vaccinated the way you had, you know, like you were alluding to, Liz, with other vaccines, because, well, you don't want outbreaks in the classroom. Like, look, you might have outbreaks in the classroom, but whether you, uh, of COVID, whether you're going to have them or not really isn't dependent on whether you have everybody vaccinated or not. Like, no one is, is claiming otherwise now. Even the, you know, the most, You know, pro restrictions kind of uh, COVID voices—they agree. There's not we're not holding down transmission uh, via vaccination, so having that policy just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then it's going to have harm. It's not going to have good in terms of 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 a public health benefit. It might, maybe, it has some benefit for individuals. Although even at this age group, you know, it's hard to hard to see real, real, real strong positive outcomes um, because, like you said. It's a, it's a population that thankfully does not uh, experience disproportionately bad COVID outcomes. So, Liz, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more rising right after this. Libs of TikTok is supposedly back in Twitter jail. Over the weekend, CEO of the Babylon Bee tweeted that the account has been locked out for violating the platform's rules against hateful conduct. The content that spurred all this is an audio recording of a phone conversation between the Libs of TikTok uh, creator and a Children's National Hospital. So during the discussion, the hospital appears to admit that they do perform gender-affirming hysterectomies on minors. So let's take a listen to this audio.
5: Thank you for calling National Hospital. Your call may be recorded for quality assurance.
4: I was calling uh for information about gender affirming hysterectomies.
3: Okay, so gender affirming hysterectomy.
4: I've been in touch with quite a few hospitals, um, and a lot of them well they said they won't do it for, for my sixteen year old. Um and then I was told that this hospital might and I also saw it on your website. Um, so if you guys do, uh, do it for a 16-year-old, I'll, I would be happy for, you know, to come for a consultation or whatever it takes. Let
0: me get you over to the operator, and I hate to transfer
4: you. I just, I just need to want to know if, if you guys do service that age, you know, before obviously, before coming, you know, coming all the way for an in-person consult and going through all the paperwork well, and everything. Yeah, it
0: depends. Like, like, each department is different. Some some departments cut off at 18. How old, how old is your patient?
4: 16.
0: Okay, all right, so they're in the clear. I'll email the doctor um, call and see what we can do. Right. In the meantime, if you still want me to transfer you, I can still transfer you to surgery.
1: According to the national desk, the hospital told the news outlet that they do not provide gender affirming surgery for anyone under the age of 18 and added that it does provide puberty blockers and other hormone treatments to children but never quote before puberty begins. Um I have to say Robbie, I think that that phone call is a little bit ambiguous. Um you know, it's clear that that's an operator, not a, a nurse and uh-huh. I mean, yeah, the operator should be clear. And obviously, there's nobody should be performing hysterectomies on people both, you know, under 18. Um, I hope that goes without saying, but um, I, I do fa- feel that that was a little bit ambiguous. I mean, I do. I think that often Libs of TikTok does really important work like that. That call is a, a the kind of call that journalists across the nation should be making and aren't making. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I do have to say, I don't know, I, I feel like it was ambiguous. It was, you know, it wasn't like a. It, to me, that's not a real smoking gun that this is happening. What do you think
0: so? I think there's this is so there's a genuine dispute here. We don't know for sure, um, and I, I appreciate. So I've criticized some other things that Libs of TikTok has done in the past. I appreciate that. And what are her names? Chaya Reichik, I think, is the person behind it. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that exactly correctly, but so she did release, uh, put on Twitter that you know this entire calls she had. It's not like edited. It, it, so she, And she's right. transferred to a couple people. And you do get two people that she's on the phone with at this hospital say that, y- yes, they have performed the gender-affirming hysterectomies on people younger than 16. 16 wouldn't be the youngest. So you, you do have you know, two people saying that. Now, maybe those people are misinformed. That could be the case. So the Washington Post followed, is reported on this, followed up, and the hospital, you know, utterly denies that they have performed it on anyone under, uh, I believe, under 18. And, you know, so then the Washington Post kind of characterizes uh, what Libs of TikTok is claiming about the, the hospital as erroneous and false. But I'm like, wait a minute, well, and then the, the story does say that, well, yes, Libs of TikTok did obtain, you know, kind of very clear uh, uh, information from this person at the hospital, two people saying it. So I don't know, maybe those people were wrong and they don't do it, Maybe the but maybe they did do it and the hospital is now just lying and saying they didn't. I think it's not clear uh, uh, from what we know now. I w- I w- like, I would not take the hospitals kind of, because they did change, they did do a little changing on their website of of what it declared, I think they changed from 70 to 18. So I'm, I I would not take what the hospital statement as like, well, they said it, so we just have to believe them. Like this is, this was enough um, uh, possible evidence pointing the other way that they did have not just one person, but two people that she called give information that kind of to me strongly indicated otherwise. So I'm not sure. I think it, it bears, further investigation. I would absolutely not. I think it'd be crazy to lock the account, uh, 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 Chaya Rechik, out of her account yeah. for this, because it's just not clear. Um, I will say, now, <laughs> maybe I would. we would disagree on this, but I'm not—so um, I think, yeah, so the, the argument is for, right, underage people, y- y- this kind of surgery. For adults, I don't it, it's that's it should be your choice. I you know mm-hmm. it's not it's not any of my business. you know P, I know expert people are debating whether this is ever the right thing for so be, I, I think it uh, you know gender transition has helped. Uh, uh, people um, in, in, in many cases, maybe for other people, it was not the right choice. If you're an adult, that's uh, between you and your doctor. It really just has nothing to do with the rest of society. So we're, you know, we're arguing what should be the case for teenagers. Some of some states do, though. I mean, they have an age of consent. You can consent to sex. You can consent to get married with your parents' permission at 16. So you know, in those states, I don't know. What do you think about this, Bachi? In states where you can, I mean, some of it's unrestricted. In Kansas. There are no restrictions on, at age 16. Um, you can have uh, sex, I believe. So, but then you, you're not—you wouldn't be allowed to go. People are saying you shouldn't be allowed to go through THE surgery. I think it should probably be the same, right? If, if you can consent to other things, I don't know why it would be different at 16.
1: Um, I hear what you're saying, but I think I think the difference is, you know. Um, it, it's one thing to have sex. It's another thing to change your body so that you can never enjoy sex again, right, at the mm-hmm. age of 16, right? There's, there, the, I think the argument is that if you start taking puberty blockers at a certain age, certainly if you if you have a hysterectomy, if you have, you know, your body altered, um, in, in many of these ways that are now called gender-affirming, um, you lose the ability to experience sexual pleasure. And I, I, I just think that that is a decision that like, children don't – I mean – Kids, they they don't really understand how important that is. Um, It's very important, I think, and and um, you know, it's like to do a one-off thing to say that you know you're old enough to consent to sex. I think is very different than saying you're old enough to make a decision about your body that we now know many Mm -hmm. people end up regretting later in life. Of course, young people end up regretting sex as well.
0: Well, and maybe um, sixteen is too is is too young, in fact, to be able to consent, and it should be eighteen. I just I think these uh this kind of the threshold at which you're an adult. Should kind of be like standard and universal, um, and should then like let you do everything, in a, including the drinking age, um, you know, drugs, military service, voting driving a car, buying a house, getting married, consenting to sex, ha- being able to have bodily autonomy in conversations with doctors and such things. seems to me it should just all, I don't know if it should be 16 or 17 or 18, somewhere in there, I, I, it should just be, I don't like, why should it be three years later then that you can drink? I'd Like it doesn't. That that doesn't make sense. I feel like it should be, we, we should decide here's when you're an adult, here's where you get all your rights, and then it's really, we're taking it out of the realm of, you know, fractious public policy fighting over it or and having it be, I mean, different state by state is kind of crazy too, but uh, I don't know. I mean, That's I think my it, view it's on it.
1: really interesting because it, in a way, um, I think that we are, we have as a society started to really infantilize young adults, you know, to where people in college, you know, will often right. behave in ways that, you know, previous generations stopped behaving like that when they were 14 or 12, right? Like there's right. there's this kind of prolonged adolescence happening in a lot of our culture um, that I think um, it's it sort of, to me, that's evidence against the argument you're making. Like there there are, you know, that that a person's adulthood or adultness or their perception of themselves as a responsible adult is very socially constructed, well, right? It's well, very...
0: And maybe it's crazy because the, the age should be higher. I mean, if, like, it's crazy that... If, if that at 16 or 17 you know you can make it so you'll never be able to have children again you might be able to not enjoy sex again but you can't have a sip of alcohol like <laughs> that's crazy Right. to, to me that's just right. crazy i did like the difference of uh, it, it, they were saying you're not you know you're not allowed to vote yet you can't have any you're not adult you're not mature enough to have any say over the policies of our, of our society but you can decide to have this you know very very serious surgery i I, again, and I don't know what the answer is, it just these things seem very out of sync to me. Uh, but we did want to play a little bit more of, of that call from uh, Lives of TikTok. Let's play that.
3: Let you know the steps and the protocol that they do for that, okay?
4: Okay. So so they do, so they would do it um, for at, for that age? Yes. Okay, great. Is it a common procedure that you guys do for for that age? Yes. Um, we
3: have um all different type of age groups that comes in
4: for that. For the gender for the hysterectomy?
3: Yes, ma'am.
4: Okay. Just out of curiosity, do you know like what's the youngest age you would do it on?
3: I'm not sure, but I have seen younger kids. And I'm not, you know, speed a hip I'm not allowed to say that, but I have <laughs> seen younger kids
4: younger than your child, The gender-affirming hysterectomy surgery?
3: Yes.
0: Okay. Yes. Um. Yeah, so again, that was the second person. You know, it, it it's kind of clear there. I guess you could, you know, the hospital could say, well, those people are coming in for consultations at a younger age, but, you know, and we set them up for it, but we wouldn't actually do it until they, they turn a, a later age. Look, I, I'd be willing to believe that, but based on what those two People said, I would not default toward going, oh, yeah, no, there's nothing to see here. Libs of TikTok definitely got this wrong. Uh, what the, the hospital statement has put right. out is good enough. Yeah, they said they don't do it, so they don't do it. That would not satisfy me based on what we've heard the, these two people say. And I think further investigation is, is certainly merited for anyone who has interest in this story. Does, does that make sense, Botch? Is that fair?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's ambiguous, you know, like it's there's sort of evidence on both sides, which means that this does merit further investigation. I think, you know, like you, I'm ambivalent about Libs of TikTok. I think it does a lot of incredibly important work. Sometimes the commentary on some of the posts offends me and um, I think goes too far. But I I think that the work is important and this certainly bears um, investigation. Um, But part of me, again is I just feel that, you know, this is this. I know as a journalist, I'm not supposed to feel this way, but I just feel that, you know, what if these people get in trouble for having, mm-hmm. you know, said something wrong and and lose their jobs? And, um you know, th- that's no, 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 neither here nor absolutely, there. You know. yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. No, right.
0: I mean, this is a criticism I've had of uh, some of the works that, for instance, Project Veritas does, where it, yeah. uh, you know, approaches people under false uh, premises, you know, at like the bar. And, again, you know, everybody will complain about their employer if you give them a few drinks, right? It's right. not, it not necessarily doesn't mm-hmm. mean and sometimes they uncover, but sometimes they do uncover very interesting information that is, you know, is worth uh, a public knowledge of, that worth uh, exposing them. I, yeah, I. But I like you, you know, feel bad for, uh, for, for you know, working people, right? These operators are, are, are you know, working class. People who have difficult jobs. And uh, mm-hmm. so, yes, I also would hope they would not uh, get uh, in trouble over that. And although I will, like Libs of Tuck Tuck did not dox them, I don't write, did not give you enough. Maybe the hospital can tell who they are because of their voices. Maybe some people would know who they are, but, you know, but didn't put their face on screen and say, this is this person, uh, which I, so I do appreciate that. In in some ways, this was a, a kind of more careful expose of this, of this, uh, of this variety. So I actually give some, yeah. some, some credit to how this was conducted. Conducted.
1: I think also in that second clip, you just hear the compassion in the operator's voice. Like she, tr- she obviously is really trying to help. And mm-hmm. I don't know, that really, <laughs> that moved me. But yeah, I agree with you. It's ambiguous and merits further investigation. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, thank you for that discussion. We'll have more Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. So there was a big uh, podcasting convention conference that took place uh, last week, and I wrote about it because Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire were apparently there and, uh, you know, just kind of hung out. I, the Daily Wire had a booth. Ben Shapiro took some pictures with some folks. And uh, that was really it. And then, like, the next day, the, the, so the, it's called Podcast Movement. That's the name of the event. They put out a statement about <laughs> you, this statement. Hi, folks. <laughs> We owe you an apology session an apology before the session kicks off for the day. Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited the expo area near the Daily Wire booth. Though he was not registered or expected, we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. There's no way around it. I got to read this whole thing. It's just too priceless. We agreed to sell the Daily Wire a first-time booth based on the company's large presence. The weight of that decision is now painfully clear. Shapiro is a co-founder. A drop-in, however unlikely, should have been considered a possibility. Wait, there's more of this. Where's the rest of it? I gotta find the rest of this. It was. It was. There's more than that. Um, Come on. Um, But can you believe that? Oh, they. Oh, they deleted some of them. Wait, I I have them in my. uh, In my. uh, um, uh, uh, They say that. Those of, those of you who called this unacceptable are right. In nine wonderful years growing and celebrating this medium, P, uh, we've made mistakes. The pain caused by this one will always stick with us. <laughs> so where, I, I don't know, where were you? This is like, uh, you know, we'll always remember where we were on 9-11 um, when, uh, when we found out that, you know, everything's going to be shut down for the pandemic. Where were you when Ben Shapiro <laughs> appeared at Podcast Movement?
1: I have to say, I mean, it's hilarious, but also I feel really sorry for these people. Like, they truly feel the trauma. I mean, they, they, they're not being cynical. They really feel it. And it's really sad sad. Like, to to get to a place where you can have convinced yourself of this. um, It's truly, truly sad. And, um, you know, part of me is like, well, you know, it's they have so much um, this worldview, you know, the like the, the kind of the view that, you know, just Ben Shapiro's presence is traumatizing, right? The people who hold that view have an insane amount of cultural power. So there's the whole like cry bully thing, right? Like they these people actually have a lot of power, right? And so so they are using this vulnerable, this you know, faux vulnerability in order to sort of wield immense amounts of cultural power. But at the same time, they really believe it. And there's something so sad mm-hmm. about that—the self-imposition of weakness and vulnerability and trauma—to the to the point where you truly feel that. I I do feel sorry for them. What what about you? I uh,
0: so I, I did ask Ben Shapiro uh, for for a comment uh, to you know to <laughs> confirm that he was there and you know find out if he was. You know, was he in, like, I don't know, full, like, Joker regalia, you know, running around with, like, a knife or something, stabbing people? Um, He said, I was in the room and standing there breathing oxygen. (laughs) That's the entire story. That's literally it. And uh, so, of course, The Daily Wire made fun of this, and they created a, a little video about it. Let's play that.
2: Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited the PM22 Expo. Though he was not registered or expected, we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. So do I get to get a picture? All right, one, two, three. God bless you. Hey, thank you. We agreed to sell The Daily Wire a first-time booth based on the company's large presence in podcasting. The weight of that decision is now painfully clear.
3: All right, of
2: during event planning, the dangerous nature of the company's messaging was overlooked. Those of you who called this unacceptable are right. Podcast movement has made mistakes. The pain caused by this one will always stick with us.
0: Yeah, thanks for everything you do. Hey, thank you Amazing. so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm excited about it. No, that's great. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, this is your So my guess is, at this convention with, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of people there, that there was about—this is just a guess, no idea—that there were maybe 16 people who were annoyed that Ben Shapiro was there, and, like, one or two people who were like, oh, this is a hate crime that he's there. Probably the number is extremely small. So the, the worrying thing is that the—and I reached out to Podcast Movement for a comment. They didn't respond. Um, the worrying thing is that even though a tiny sliver of people feel this way that anyone who disagrees with them is such a dangerous extremist that it is traumatizing to be anywhere near them or have them included in any way that the group of people who feel that way is it's actually it's small it's pretty small but they somehow extort these big institutions into humoring their kind of delusion that this is an acceptable way to behave, that, that you should be able to you know, shut down or prevent interaction or platforming at all of, of, you know, of not just genuinely extreme or, you know, crazy people. But Ben Shapiro is, is a pretty mainstream, quite conservative pundit. I mean, he's, he's, he's kind of the poster child for what a uh, you know, young, uh, conservative voice is. It's Ben Shapiro. So if you have a problem with that, you really do have a problem with basically all kind of right-leaning dissenting from uh, progressive orthodoxy. Again, I think the people who feel that way are very small in number, but they get their way an awful lot.
1: In fact, that is a major theme of Ben Shapiro's last book. I wish I remembered the name of it. I think it was the authoritarian left or something like that. But he spends a lot of time arguing about how to take over a movement, you don't actually have to take over the movement. You don't have to take over 50% right. of the movement. You just need 10% or something. He has a number there based on scientific research about, like, at what point the larger movement will decide that it is not worth fighting the radicals and will start siding with them just because it's the easier thing to do and it's a much smaller number than certainly a moral majority. Um, so it's it's ironic be, that you bring that up. It's, not, right. a it's not a majority on campuses.
0: Work. I saw that when I visited campuses for my own book. You know, it, it, the more elite and expensive, fancy liberal arts you go, you know, then you're increasing the percentage of people who feel this way. But, you know, we're talking, your know, average state school, it might be, you know, it might be five or 10%. It might be 25% or 30% at, you know, at some institutions, but probably almost nowhere is it like half of, of, uh, of people wanting like all dissent shut down because it's traumatizing. So you're right. You're talking about tiny numbers of people who then have left campus and, and gone uh, to, uh, you know, have it, spaces where that kind of Person gets hired. Um, entertainment companies, media companies, uh, maybe the legal field, um, even the business field to some extent. Then uh, they, they want to dictate, you know, the content choices, the editorial choices at journalistic outlets, the content choices at places like Netflix and HBO, it's and Amazon and and uh, and Hulu and all those. And and that you know, then you start to see. In some cases, we have seen. The kind of humoring of even the unpopular woke perspective that the audiences, the viewers, the readers, the subscribers don't feel that way at all. We're talking; we're, they're not representative. But the companies have felt they need to do what 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 those people want. And I've actually been uh, um, heartened, at least in this category, the entertainment category. You know, Netflix putting out that kind of very powerful statement uh, in the summer that, like, no, we're not we're not doing any more of this kind of uh, self censorship to please people if that's the kind of thing you're, you're looking. For. For, you shouldn't work here and because i think the companies those kind of companies at least that actually do have kind of a, a bottom line and a market incentive and can see what their customers and subscribers actually care about those people are figuring out that it is at the end of the day poisonous to give too much veto power to uh, you know a woke scold uh perspective that might not be true in in the, I, I, that's not going to be true in all organizations some will continue to be uh, affected by this perhaps the podcasting convention space, um, which uh, I, w- I wonder if we'd be, if we'd be too much, uh, too much trouble for this, uh, for this, for this event, Bachi. I wonder if someone would complain about uh, you or I or, uh, or anybody else.
1: It's ironic because a lot of podcasting has stepped into this kind of conservative space because the the left has such a lock on, you know, mm-hmm. these sort of entertainment companies, news companies, etc. Um, I have a more cynical read about Netflix, which is it was preparing for a lot of layoffs and was hoping people would quit en masse and they wouldn't have to pay severance <laughs> if they made this statement in support of, of uh, you know, c- contraband opinions um, and cr- and thought crimes. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, it, it's just so interesting. The Pew uh, Research Center, uh, they they, they sort of did a a taxonomy of uh, political opinion in America, and they found that, you know, the number of people who could be put in the progressive category was 6% of Americans. It's such a teeny tiny number. But because they have so many positions, you know, of power in terms of entertainment, media, journalism, um, politics, um, they're able to affect this, um, uh, you know, this mirage that Mm -hmm. this is the view that represents 50% of Americans, that this is the sort of mainline, mainstream democratic view when it's just a a teeny tiny portion of of Americans and Americans in general are much more united than divided on all of these big issues.
0: Mm, That's a good point. Maybe you, me and Bree can hit the podcast (laughs) movement circuit next year, perhaps. Anytime. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. All right, Bache. We're going to talk about Sydney Sweeney, whom you don't know who that is, I believe. I do not. <laughs> okay, so Sydney Sweeney is uh, an actress, uh, kind of up and coming, becoming very popular, big, uh, big-time actress being talked about as she's on euphoria um another hbo show uh, uh uh what was that one called white lotus so she had a uh a she was birthday party for her grandmother and you know posted the pictures from it and <laughs> there's nothing wrong with them right it was kind of like i don't know western themed or prairie themed or something there's people in cowboy hats um but there's people wearing red hats and they don't even say like make america great again it's like make make birthday, make 60 great again or something like that. that was the grandmother's age. Um, A couple people on social media responded to this and were like, oh, my God, is Sydney Sweeney's family, are they MAGA? Are they pro-Trump? I feel so betrayed by this. And again, I think we're talking about 16 people, like a small number of people. That launched a bunch of articles, like entertainment, gossip articles, like, oh, look at how angry Sydney's fans are at her over an unproven rumor that seems totally false. Um, so, eventually, Sidney Sweeney released a statement, a very correct statement, I think we have it, we can put it up, saying, like, you guys, this is wild. You're reading way too much into this. Um, happy birthday. Or maybe it was his mo- her mother rather than her grandmother. Um, oh, my God. And then, so now you have a lot of uh, conservative articles, like there's a Fox News article being like, look at the backlash, Cindy Sweeney is getting over this, how unfair this is. So this is a great example of a nothing story, taken because there's no underlying story here, there's no evidence actual whatsoever that her family is Trump supporting. It wouldn't matter if they were, half the country votes for Republicans, like 35% of it loves Trump. <laughs> there's, more, there's more than, uh, than just like, like Elizabeth Warren loving progressives out there, even in the entertainment industry. So it would be a non-story anyway. But it's also a non-story because there's no evidence that her family's Trump, Trumpy. Um, and I really, I don't think that many people were even that upset. And they were reaching if they were. And then, so then all these articles are baseless. So then the backlash to the backlash is stupid too. And it's just like layers and layers and layers and layers of dumb. So that's the Sydney Sweeney saga from over the weekend, Baccia.
1: I have to say, I'm very glad you told me this story because um, I think it's very admirable that she didn't cave and didn't apologize and didn't sell out her family. I mean, it's I, I, if you had told me how the story was going to end, I kept being like, and then she issued an, a groveling apology, you know, someone who's, whose shows are on HBO, right? I mean, we know watches HBO. It's not exactly like Middle America Fair, right? right. Like this is, <laughs> and she stood by her guns and said, you guys are making way too much of this. She didn't say, we're progressives, we're the good. Good ones we have the good values you know we're on your side she just said get over yourselves and i think that's really admirable i'm i'm really proud of her and i'm so i i, I think that this is like a kind of a success story like of course yes you see how the media machine is like you know meta- anxious to metabolize this and turn it into this or that but you you see everybody you know, I, everybody I lit, have you know the licking
0: their lips have their knives out they're like <laughs> yes yes we're gonna cancel a celebrity <laughs> glorious you know. Uh, yeah, I think she's so a really was... talented, really talented actress. I, I watched Euphoria. I liked Euphoria. So in Euphoria, she plays this character. So she's she's playing, like, teen girl characters. And I guess her Euphoria character is kind of clueless or is, like, is seduced mm-hmm. by, like, the villain of the show who's the the football, the quarterback who's, like, a total psychopath. And uh, it's like, it's very much like, oh, no, don't, don't go out with him, Cindy. What are you? I mean, not the, just the character, not the, obviously not uh-huh. the actress. And then in, uh, in uh, White Lotus, which is about this, uh, this uh, resort hotel in Hawaii, where every where it's like hell or something. It's so, everyone's so crazy. And she plays like, like an extremely vicious kind of Gen Z bully, like, like horrible, horrible evil, like the most like, kind of evil teen girl, mean girl, popular girl type person. So she's really talented, they're both really good shows. Um, I'm sure she's going to be in, like, movies and a lot more stuff uh, uh, moving forward. But uh, it'll be—I guess it'll be interesting to learn if she actually has a right-wing family. But, again, we have no evidence of that based on just a harmless uh, birthday party. I thought it was going to go even in, like, a cultural appropriation direction or something. I guess nobody cares if you're dressed up as cowboys or something. But maybe they're going to have to steer clear of uh, any other, you know, theme parties in the future. A theme party is is a danger in our, you know, current political climate met.
1: The thing is like what it shows is like they they can't stand that even one person will not be you know with the program Mm -hmm. with the message you know like um you see what they do to chris pratt who's i think a christian and and an out conservative you know the attempts to like torpedo his career like because he doesn't agree with you on politics i long for the days where you didn't know how actors and celebrities voted you know invariably when they weigh in, in on these issues they sound like completely morons. And it's just like, I, you know, I don't understand why it's not enough to just be like, so good looking, that people want to stare at you on an enormous screen for two hours while you pretend to be somebody else and get paid millions of dollars. Like, why isn't that enough? You know, <laughs> you have to weigh in on politics and sound like an idiot. But because that is now the norm, they end up and, you know, and because as we keep saying over and over, you know, because the left has such a lock on culture right now on mm-hmm. so much of the culture, invariably they have to identify with this kind of, you know, liberal point of view. You look at like, the you know, any of these award shows, the Oscars, they're all just be clowning themselves with just embarrassing, embarrassing political messaging, but always on one side. And if they get just a whiff that somebody disagrees with them, it's like, no, bring on the cancellation machine. Or what
0: about, uh, I-, I love when there's always the expose that, you know, this person, they go to church. Wow, scary. <laughs> so the Chip and Joanna Gaines, the fixer-upper couple, it's a lot of, yeah, they go to a church, very, you know, who knows, they, they could have all sorts of <laughs> views, Half more, half or more of the country. Have as well. Uh, very, very funny the way uh, many in the media talk about the rest of America, as you often and so smartly uh, point out <laughs> in your own commentary on these issues. So, Thank all right. You, well, we will have uh, more rising uh, right after this. In a recent episode of Joe Rogan's podcast, Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers opened up about how the popular podcaster and skeptic of the COVID vaccine helped him develop his own COVID nineteen game plan. During his appearance, Rodgers said, "You helped uh, me to be ready in case I did get COVID."
3: You know, you helped me with a, uh, you know, a, a game plan to be ready in case I did get COVID, and and I followed it to a T. And when I got COVID. You know within 36 hours i was you know symptom free and feeling amazing but the protocols was you're off for 10 days so i missed a game we lost a football game i came back had to answer a ton of questions about it obviously I had my you know basically i lost you know the majority of allies i thought i had in the media the good thing is it drew a real line in the sand and
0: so uh, the NFL MVP has been open about his anti-vaccine stance and faced backlash when he uh, miscommunicated uh, his vaccine status to the public. If I recall, uh, some people thought he had implied that he was vaccinated, but what he actually said is that he was following you know various protocols, which would have included, I think, protocols for if you are unvaccinated. And look, so he got you know he felt better in a day and a half, as you know some people. Some people do, maybe more people do if they are vaccinated. You know, it's, it's supposedly it makes your symptoms, for some people at least, have uh, have have not as bad symptoms or they, they ease up uh, more quickly. Uh, but and then for, you know, for most illnesses, right, once you feel better, you're, you know, you're presumed to be not really contagious or at risk of anyone else. But beca- at the time, we still had the 10-day thing in place, which was just going to make so much of life you know missing 10 days of work or 10 days of school or 10 days of anything it's just way too much so then eventually the guidance i think was was drawn down to um to five days after that um so i don't know What, what did you make of that interview
1: i mean you know i think you've been spot on about this from the beginning but the minute it became clear that being vaccinated did not mean you couldn't spread the illness It should have become nobody's business whether you had the vaccine or not. Nobody's right. business. What you did with your body, especially for athletes, especially now that we know that they they've been wildly underreporting any side effects from the vaccines. Um, so I I I feel that you know putting people in a position where they had to harm their careers, where they had to lie about something or misrepresent something just to carry on. I feel a little bit like that's on the regime, that's not on the mm-hmm. person, um, and that that yeah, that I mean that did lead people to have these kind of you know micro communities. In this case, it was like one celebrity was able to reach out to another celebrity to get that game plan, right? Because they already had that, that connection, that network. But I think for a lot of just regular working people, um, you know, people got fired over this stuff. And it's not okay. It's just not okay. And um, that thing where you said, I lost all my allies in the media, you know, like that, exactly. It's like, wh- why is this anybody's business? How dare you judge somebody for what they've decided to do, uh, when when we know, fine, when we thought that the vaccine was going to prevent the spread, yes, you could make the argument then, mm-hmm. although even then I wouldn't have said you have the right to enforce this on somebody, but you could make the argument that there is a kind of like communal aspect to this. But the minute we knew that that was no longer the case, the discourse should have completely changed. And in fact, it didn't change at all. Yeah. <laughs> That's very disturbing. And also,
0: you know, do the allies that he lost in the media not understand that like, Different people are different, and it, it could very well be the case at, at the level of elite competition, like, uh, same thing with uh, Novak Djokovic, that Djokovic, someone yeah. who, you know, is in the peak of their physical health, you know, do, is not at a, a risk category for COVID, uh, but, you know, might worry, which is not like, it's not anti-vaccine crankery or anything, but, you know, the way um, getting that vaccine could impact your body. Look, you know, it's had, the vaccine itself has had, uh, people have reported, you know, we don't know exactly the st- statistics with how likely it is. People have, I know women have reported, some women have reported um, ha- having their, uh, their, you know, periods be less regular, things like that. Um, you, you know, you could have, there, there are unknown, unexplored side effects uh, aspects of this, and I, you know, I'm being very careful because I'm not, I'm not saying that means it's a bad choice for most people, anything like that, but you could see someone who has such, you know, kind of peak physical health, is, is very cautious about what they put in their body and how they train and what they do, it might be the case for that, one, that person that they, they narrowly have more to risk or will throw them off the way their body works from any kind of thing like this. It would be more, might be more of a concern for them than COVID. Maybe not. I don't know. But like, that's their choice. That's something to talk about with their trainer or their doctor or whatever. It just doesn't affect me. It's not my business. It doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't know. I don't know what his health situation is or what his training plan is or what, or, or what the risk might be either way for him. It's just not our business. And it's crazy that you would turn on someone for making some other calculation uh, because it's not your business and it doesn't affect you.
1: And in fact, the motto, my body, my choice, is so effective and works so well for the women's movement um for abortion rights but was so quickly appropriated by the right that in Kansas the democrats told people going out to advocate for abortion rights not to use the language my body my choice because it had been so successfully appropriated by the anti mandate movement you know that concept is is kind of you know baked into our constitution our most basic you know rights is like that i get to decide what happens to me when you know it's it's just me. And in in the case of abortion, there's actually another life there. Whereas here, it's literally just because we know that, you know, the vaccines don't slow the spread. I'm with you. You know, this is I'm not saying that they're not effective at, you know, preventing serious illness, but they are not effective at slowing the spread, at preventing transmission, at which point it really does become, you know, an individual choice. And it's so crazy that people can't respect that. And I just keep coming back to this idea that, you know, the, the 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 left As soon as um, the lockdowns were over and there was, um, you know, a vaccine available, they started to demand that people who were um, entertainers or wait staff or medical staff or pilots or cops, people who service them, uh, be vaccinated so they could feel comfortable being serviced by these people they felt that they had the right to then tell them how they should protect themselves, you know? Like, there's something about that that's just very, to me, it's like very Marie Antoinette, like the, mm. the, that sort of, um, the, the, the status differential there and how that's operating, um, it's, it, it's really troubling. Mm.
0: Indeed, well put. Uh, well, we will have more Rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Celebrity A-listers like Kim and Khloe Kardashian, Sylvester Stallone, Dwayne Wade, and Kevin Hart are accused of violating California drought restrictions. According to the Los Angeles Times, they are among more than 2,000 customers who surpassed 150 percent of their monthly water budgets at least four times. A drought emergency was declared at the end of last year, prompting the Metropolitan Water District to order residents to cut back water use by about 80 gallons per person per day. According to a survey of more than 9,000 voters statewide, 71 percent called the water shortage extremely serious. 23 percent described it as somewhat serious. Joining us now to discuss is Los Angeles Times reporter Haley Smith. Haley, thanks for joining us
5: hi thanks for having me
0: so i know very little about the water restrictions living on the other side of the country in dc uh what, what is the enforcement mechanism for this restriction is it just is it just honor system or is there actual punishment for <laughs> going over it
5: great question um so just as context we are here in the western united states and in california deep in the third year of drought and the first half of this year was the driest it's ever been in california so the water shortage issue is pretty dire out here um, which is why we have these restrictions and these rules and so to answer your question uh, this particular water district that we looked at for this story does have um, a varied uh uh, an escalating fine structure so people can be fined um, if they use more than their water budget but unfortunately what we start to see happening during these droughts is wealthy people and celebrities who just pay the fine um, and keep their grass green while the rest of us sort of let our grass die and, and do our part to conserve um, and so additionally what this water district has done is implemented um, a, a little silver metal disc called a flow restrictor device which they say they can install on your main shutoff valve to reduce your water flow to a trickle, and that's what they're threatening to do here with um, some of these water WASTERS, including the celebrities that you just mentioned.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I'd have to imagine it'd have to be a pretty hefty fine to really scare the Kardashian family. I mean, there's like probably no level of fine that a government could charge them that would make them <laughs> conserve their water if they if they really if they're really using it. Is it is it, um, is it lawn care upkeep? Is that a major uh, uh, reason for why people go over their their uh, water allotment?
5: Yes, absolutely. In mm. residential areas like this and, and urban areas like Los Angeles, the majority of water usage goes toward uh, outdoor watering. So your sprinklers, your lawns, things like that. Um, it's less so inside the house, which is why restrictions generally start with Uh, WATERING AND SO THIS PARTICULAR DISTRICT HAS BEEN REDUCED TO A MANDATORY ONE DAY A WEEK OUTDOOR WATERING SCHEDULE WHERE YOU CAN ONLY USE YOUR SPRINKLERS FOR EIGHT MINUTES ON YOUR DESIGNATED WATERING DAY AND THAT'S IT AND OBVIOUSLY THESE PEOPLE AND and MANY OTHERS IN THE AREA HAVE BEEN VIOLATING THAT ORDER.
0: AND 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 THE THEORY BEHIND THIS BEING THAT YOU'RE LITERALLY IN DANGER, WE'RE LITERALLY IN DANGER, PEOPLE IN CALIFORNIA, uh, THE GOVERNMENT, THE WATER RESERVES ARE ACTUALLY DEPLETING TO WHERE THERE WOULDN'T BE ENOUGH DRINKING WATER FOR PEOPLE IF THEY LET PEOPLE WATER THEIR GRASS WHENEVER THEY WANTED TO?
5: ABSOLUTELY, YEAH. SO BASICALLY SOUTHERN CALIFORNIA WATER OFFICIALS HAVE SAID WE CANNOT AFFORD GREEN LAWNS. SO AFTER THIS INCREDIBLY DRY START TO THE YEAR THAT WE'VE HAD, WHICH AGAIN IS ON TOP OF TWO OTHER REALLY DRY YEARS, um, the state water suppliers have basically slashed their allocation for the year to just 5%. So basically state officials have said, hey, we have enough water to give everyone 5% of what they've asked for, which is basically nothing. And then our other water supply or our other major water supply, the Colorado River, which is federally managed, um, is also dealing with incredible drought issues and um, shrinking. And it's some of its reservoirs are down to less than half of their capacity right now.
0: Are these restrictions popular with people? Are are people like, yeah, I guess we have to do this? Or did they think this is just an utterly unacceptable kind of tyranny to be told when you can use your sprinklers?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, as we saw during the pandemic, people don't necessarily take very well to being um, ordered to do certain things. But I do think most people in California um, are on board with this. It's part of life here. I mean, drought is part of life in California. We live in a arid uh, state or an arid climate. So um, I think people are sort of understanding. But again, we do start to see these violators every year. And um, it's tricky, you know, and they're they're trying to encourage Everyone in the state to think about a different vision for what California can look like, right? So it's not those green lawns and these sprawling properties of the American dream 50, 60, 70 years ago. It's drought tolerant landscape, it's hardscaping, it's native plants, things like that. We mm. need to sort of re envision California.
0: And obviously, with the celebrities, there's the hypocrisy aspect of this right, because and I, I'm not sure about the specific people, but in general, you know, Hollywood celebrities cl- are a class of people who purport to care a lot about the environment. And then, you know, we like routinely catch them, you know, flying private jets and all sorts of things that aren't good mm-hmm. for the environment. So it, it, it I guess it feels very, uh, it's very rich of them to talk about the need to be green when they literally refuse to, you know, just water their lawns a a little less frequently.
5: Right, and I'll give you some specific numbers here because they are pretty eye popping. So what we looked at for this story, and this was obtained through a public records request, this data is excess use. So properties are given an allocated water budget and that budget accounts for the size of your property and the number of people who live in your home and the amount of irrigatable land. So that should all be factored into your water budget. And what these celebrities have done is exceeded their budget in in Dwayne Wade's case by half a million gallons in the month of May. So um, Dwayne Wade and his wife, Gabrielle Union's Hidden Hills Home exceeded their May budget by half a million gallons. Um, Sylvester Stallone's Hidden Hills Home exceeded its budget by 230,000 gallons in June so this is not just a little bit of waterways these are some pretty significant numbers and just to help put those big numbers in perspective um, i'll give you another number which is 80 gallons per person per day and that is what officials have said we all need to get down to to make our very limited supplies last during this drought
0: wow That sounds a lot lot of water they're using, uh, despite um, what they say about the need for everyone to pull in and sacrifice. Um, Thank you so much for your reporting and for joining us. We really appreciate it.
5: Sure thing. Thanks for having me.
0: And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. The FBI has confirmed that it routinely notifies social media companies of information related to, quote, potential threats. This comes after Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg told Joe Rogan Facebook censored the Hunter Biden laptop story in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election because of an FBI warning. Former director of national intelligence John Radcliffe had this to say about Zuckerberg's claim last week discussions between
3: my office, the director of national intelligence, the FBI, and the attorney general uh, at the Department of Justice, all uh, we all agreed, look, we need to counter this. Uh, and I put out a statement and was backed up by both the uh, Department of Justice and FBI uh, that this was not Russian disinformation. So to hear that uh, contrary to what the FBI director uh, was saying and the official position of the FBI, that agents were acting in contradiction to that in dealings with Facebook or telling, uh, if whistleblowers are to be believed, telling FBI agents uh, to suppress information about Hunter Biden's laptop and to amplify damaging information about then-President Donald Trump, you know that, that is um, uh, entirely inconsistent with what we all knew, which was, and what you, what you now know and the public knows is that this wasn't Russian disinformation. Hunter Biden's laptop was real. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of folks misled uh, the American people about that and the American voter about that two weeks before a presidential election.
1: So, Robbie, in the clip I saw with Rogan, um, Zuckerberg doesn't name check specifically the Hunter Biden story. He says the FBI reached out to Facebook and said, Be on high alert. In the 2016 election, there was a lot of Russian misinformation and we expect the same here. And in the clip I saw, at least, Rogan did not push back and say, but did they specifically tell you to be on high alert against the Hunter Biden story? And so while I I feel very strongly about how social media in general suppressed that story, um, really problematic on many, many fronts. TO ME THIS REALLY WASN'T QUITE THE SMOKING GUN THAT MANY WERE PUTTING, SORT OF c- CASTING IT AS. WHAT DO YOU no, THINK? NO,
0: I, I AGREE WITH YOU, Bacha I, I LOOKED AT IT MORE CLOSELY, SO the, THE TWITTER, LIKE THE CAPTION ON ONE OF THE VERSIONS OF THIS THAT WENT VIRAL DID SUGGEST THAT ZUCKERBERG WAS SPECIFICALLY SAYING THE FBI CONTACTED THEM ABOUT THE HUNTER BIDEN LAPTOP. WHEN YOU WATCH THE CLIP. It's not clear that he's saying it's about that. And actually, Rogan does ask, do you mean later, do you mean specifically about Hunter Biden? And then Zuckerberg's kind of like, no. It actually, it seemed to me that perhaps Mark Zuckerberg realized that this is a great moment to throw the FBI under the bus for a conservative audience. You know, conservatives who are mad at Facebook and other social media companies for how they handled that issue he wants to shift the blame to the fbi conservatives are hopping mad at the fbi right now over the mar-a-lago stuff so i think he was now he didn't say anything that wasn't untrue he it was just kind of like yeah oh the fbi you know they get in contact with us so routinely now that might be that is i think a problem in and of itself so this doesn't it's not like i agree with you it's not a smoking gun exactly because it wasn't specifically about the hunter biden laptop but Look, we know that they put social media companies on high alert for so-called Russian-backed, based disinformation, and we know that you know FBI, uh, law, you know, fifty, however many it was former intelligence agents and law enforcement agents, you know, said, well, this kind of looks like Russian disinformation. And my understanding of what Facebook did and Twitter did, although what the two did was different, Twitter actually did, you couldn't share it on on Twitter, whereas Facebook deprioritized it, made it less likely to show up in the algorithm for a period of time. It was based on, uh, in in my interviews, the research I've done, talking to people at those companies, it's based on cues they get from mainstream, from mainstream media figures and law enforcement in general. So not, so part of that being what you can see in public, what you, what you can see being mainstream New York Times reporters, Washington Post reporters saying, oh my God, this is Russian. This could be Russian disinformation. Something should be done about it. Like on, like they're saying that publicly on social media, in articles. And then that causes those companies to go, you know what, there might be something to this. Now that is worrisome (laughs) in a lot of ways. However, I do take uh, I, you know, sometimes I end up feeling bad for people like Zuckerberg, even because they're going to be yelled at by either side, no matter what. They they can't make people happy, and they're getting screamed at and threatened with regulation. They're hauled before Congress routinely mm-hmm. to be threatened with having their businesses destroyed by, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or whether it's Josh Hawley, for opposite reasons. And they're like, well, what, you know, what do you want us to do? And you and I say, well, we just want you to not <laughs> just be a platform for for free speech for like you say you are just let all views kind of be out there and don't try to you know don't try to tell us what to think and Zuckerberg will say right I'm not trying to tell you what to think but then this stuff still happens
1: I think that is such a great point that you made. It may not be a smoking gun for the Hunter Biden laptop, but it is a smoking gun for something equally disastrous. And, you know, we started the show talking about um, how how President Biden is calling, you know, the MAGA people semi-fascists, right, because they don't believe in democracy. But um, check out this survey, a new survey from the Technometrica Institute of Policy and Politics found that 78 percent of respondents who followed the Hunter Biden laptop's story, believe that truthful coverage would have changed the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. Mm. So when you're thinking about which side is committed, you know, when one side is claiming to be the side that's committed to democracy, but then has this kind of, you know, back channel um, agreement not to share information that would have potentially changed the outcome of an election, it sort of undermines their sort of that claim to moral high ground, don't you think?
0: It does. Although I've said this before and I'll say it again. I do disagree with that statement. I don't think... uh, Me too. I think if if the Hunter Biden story had not been suppressed at all on social media, I think it would have been less of a story. I think it would have gotten less attention than it ended up Mm. getting. Because while they literally suppressed the actual Mm. story, they did not suppress then the 800 articles about how this story, for some reason, is something the administration or the, the law enforcement apparatus, social media doesn't want you to know about this story. It was very much a straight... Sand effect situation where efforts to stop people, clumsy efforts to make it more difficult for you to read it, I think made it seem—made it a bigger deal than it would have been otherwise. So I, I, I just—I don't believe that that the election—and also I don't believe that the election— you know, hit really hinged on this, you know, the question of what Hunter Biden was up to. Who's not to say that's not an interesting question, and if it does impugn Joe Biden in some way with the deal-making, that is something that people deserve to know, to be clear. But I actually don't think that was the main question. Be I think conservatives want that to be the main question, or want to pretend that that's the main question that was being litigated in that election. I don't believe it. I don't think so. I just don't. We deserve the truth about it regardless, but... And it shows how how efforts to suppress and censor can backfire spectacularly, Mm -hmm. but I don't Mm -hmm. think it would have changed the outcome.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on this. Um, It's interesting because when I first saw this poll, I thought they were going to say 78 percent of people said they would vote different. They would have voted differently. And I think there were some tweets summarizing it that way. And I thought "Mm, that's a a 78 (laughs) percent exactly yeah. say that they think that it would have impacted, you know, some num- relevant number of people. And I agree with you. I don't think that the the election was a referendum on Hunter Biden. I think it was, you know, a referendum on COVID. Yeah, it's a little
0: bit of Trump world uh, wishful thinking to think, oh yeah, oh, we, the- o- we almost won if only, <laughs> we would have won if only, you know, three more people had known about the Hunter Biden story. And again, more people, I would argue more people ended up knowing about that story. We're still talking about it years and years later, in part because of how social media mishandled that story. So that that, and that's itself is a cautionary tale for what these companies are doing in a lot of cases, which I think is wrong. But um, anyway, that's that's our take on that. So, well, it was great having you with us today, Baccia, as we always do on Mondays. And tomorrow on Rising, Brianna Joy Gray will be back and we'll see you next week.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere that podcasts are available. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye, everybody.